Um, so excited to be with you today. This is actually the church that Kathy and I go to. And uh, here, take this. And I uh, have been looking forward to this Tuesday thing. I just did it at the Mariners campus for five weeks, and we had a great time. We're actually going to talk about uh, people who are overcommitted and underconnected in their marriage. We'll talk about communication. 86% of marriages that derail, they say derail because of poor communication. So we'll do some communication stuff, some conflict stuff. Uh, we'll talk about physical intimacy. So we'll have an adult sex talk. Uh, a little bit R-rated, and then we'll also talk about spiritual intimacy. So I think we'll have a great time. It's not just me talking, but it's some people, you know, being able to deal with some things. So I want to invite you out on that Tuesday. Uh, first time I've been here, although many times at the church, we sit in the nerd section back where you people are. This is the non-nerd section over here. Yeah. And, um, and I love the worship. I love where this church is going and who leads this place. And I know we're in a transition, but it's, uh, I know the leadership, and some of you do too, and the leadership uh, knows what they're doing, so it's going to be great. I oftentimes walk at the Dana Point Harbor. I was there this morning, and I was thinking about it with my dog, Kona, uh, that a few years ago, I had just finished a book that I had written called Creating an Intimate Marriage. And so I was thinking about marriage as I was walking the dog. It was about 5.45 in the morning, and I see a couple skipping and stealing kisses coming toward me. Now, I've been married to Kathy for 38 years. I know I look much younger, but I don't think we've ever skipped and stolen kisses, and definitely not at 5.45 in the morning. Now, we've skipped. We've stolen kisses, but never together, and definitely not at 5.45. I got news for you. Well, this couple is coming toward me, and as they're coming toward me, I'm just staring at them in amazement at the connection. So they come straight up to me. They don't say hello to me, but they start petting my dog. And they haven't even said hello to me. They didn't acknowledge that there was a human being there. So I just kind of went, hi. I said, can I ask you a question? And they looked up at me, and I said, well, you guys have an amazing relationship. I'm watching you skipping and stealing kisses. And I do a little speaking and writing in the area of family and parenting and things. And, well, what's your secret? Well, they looked at me, and they looked at each other, and they said, well, actually, we're not married. Went, oh. Now it got awkward really quick. And then I said, well, you both are wearing wedding rings. And they said, well, we're wearing wedding rings, but we're not married to each other. We're married to other people. I did what you did. You just kind of went, oh, like that. And I went, oh. And now again, it's very awkward as I'm kind of standing there. She decided to tell me the story. And her story was, she's from Nashville, Tennessee. He's from Northern Virginia. And they work for the same company. And then she says, we're staying at the Laguna Cliffs Marriott. Too much information for me. And um, she's pointing to the Marriott and she thinks it's beautiful. And they get together about five or six times a year. And they are soulmates, she tells me. But there's another family in Nashville. There's another family in Northern Virginia. I'm guessing those families aren't doing all that hot. In fact, I'm not sure they know about each other, but really the family's probably not doing well. And then they left and they skipped and stole kisses as they were going down the harbor. And I kind of stood there just watching them for a minute. And then I thought, you know, they don't really look like bad people. They kind of look like you and me, just sort of normal people. Well, maybe you're not normal, but I think sometimes I am. And I thought, what's their story? Now, I don't know their story, but I'm guessing that there was a time when the couple in Nashville, the couple in Northern Virginia, loved each other, and they didn't have a false soulmate. And it's my guess that they came before a pastor and a priest or somebody, and they said, I will, I do, we're best friends, we're committed for life, but something happened. And so what happened? Now, again, I'm not speaking on marriage today, but this illustration works for the scripture that we're going to look at in a minute, and I think what happened was that they probably neglected the basics. 
the basics to their marriage. Maybe they quit dating. Maybe they quit spending time with each other. Perhaps it was because they got too busy. Perhaps they got distracted with job, distracted with babies. Maybe they started making babies. A lot of times, especially when you have younger children, you kind of get child-focused, and so the marriage wasn't as strong, and so they neglected the basics. It was that great theologian, Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers, who said, when you've strayed away from the basics, you've gone a long ways toward defeat. He was talking about football, but that sort of happens in marriage and in faith, too. And then they again, neglected the basics, they got distracted, they started drifting away, and my guess is one day, maybe several years later, they looked up and they went, whoa, we're lost. And they found their false soulmate in the arms of somebody else. Now again, if we're not careful, that's us. And why I say that that's us is because sometimes what we do within our faith, within our life, within our relationships is we, we neglect the basics. We know what the basics are, we just don't do them. I mean, we're not exactly lazy, we just simply get distracted. I call them attractive distractions. Not always bad. We're not doing something evil, we just sort of get distracted. And so the scripture that I want to share with you today is a scripture that is found in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. And in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, you can bring your Bibles down. I, since I sit here, I get to watch how this all works out. And uh, so there he is, if you need a Bible. There she is if you need a Bible. And in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, it's, it's one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. In fact, many people would say that it's a near-perfect summary of the Christian faith. So in Hebrews 12, we start with an amazing word. We're going to show it up on the screen. It says, therefore. We'll just stop right there. Therefore. Now, whenever somebody wants to know why therefore is therefore, we have to look at the previous scripture which we're not going to look at, but we're going to talk about it. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So in other words, we have to look to Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11, it's really important for us as we think about the context of this scripture. Hebrews 11 is the story of the mothers and the fathers of our faith. And so we've got Moses and Abraham and all those kind of people. But what's amazing about it, if you really look at those names, in that list of great people, the, you know, the who's who in our faith in the Old Testament, the who's who of our faith are liars and murderers. There's a prostitute in there. And the incredible story that you saw with Jamie is really the story of the fathers and the mothers of our faith because God transformed them in a neat way. But those people who had their issues, just like you and I have their issues, and I just, I've been in ministry long enough to assume that you have issues just like I have issues, that those people actually were used by God in a great way. But I think they actually focused on the basics. So I want to read this scripture to you now farther. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Pretty incredible statement, actually. Let us run with perseverance. You might want to underline, put it in your head, the word perseverance because actually how we grow in our faith sometimes isn't through some magic uh, formula, and it's not a quick fix. Sometimes we think that's the case within the church, but most of the time it's, it's perseverance, whether it be marriage, whether it be faith, whether it be relationships, it's perseverance, and you run with perseverance, that's what it says. It then says, perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. So in other words, not being distracted, but keeping our eyes on, on Christ, who not only helps us focus, but also comes alongside with us. 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do you ever grow weary and lose heart? I do. Do you ever grow weary in your family situation? Do you ever grow weary in your work? Do you ever grow weary in a relationship? I do. There are times when I lose heart. Now, Kathy and I come from what we call classic dysfunctional families. We were uh, both people who were not raised in necessarily Christian homes. And uh, my family kind of had alcoholism. Her family had its own dysfunction. And we met in college. And one week after college, we got married. We thought it would be easy because we became Christians when we were teenagers. Said, well, now that we're Christians, we're going to have an okay marriage. We'll have an okay family. And pretty quickly, we realized that a sinner marries another sinner, and then you have sinnerlings. And they sort of bump into each other. And for us, one year into our marriage, we had been distracted, talking about maybe even divorce. It wasn't going well. And we decided that we would put a stake in the ground. And for us, that stake in the ground said that we are going to make this, or we'll be miserable, but we're going to make it. And we decided that we would become, and there's two words, and we made up these words, but we've been living these, this life for all of our marriage. And it's called transitional generation. And transitional generation means that, as the Bible says, you inherit the sins of a previous generation to the second and third, fourth generation. And so I realized that I had inherited some of my parents' sin bent or their, their issues, and Kathy did too, and so when we got together, that wasn't good. So we made a decision one year out that we would either recover or repeat. And we decided that we were going to recover and break the chain of dysfunction in one generation. And you know what? It's been the hardest thing we've ever done. But we're in that process still, and it's a process, just like it would be with you. You recover, you repeat. Now, fast forward the illustration. My daughter, Christy, who's actually here in the room, who is one of the people I admire most and I love and is incredibly articulate. At 17, she was pounding on Kathy in the kitchen. And they were, I'd call it an argument, except it was all Christy all the time, and Kathy's just kind of taking it, and Christy is just slamming on Kathy. And I'm being the passive-aggressive father and husband. I'm in the other room listening, but not making an appearance into this thing. And in fact, there are a couple things that Christy said about Kathy, and I went, boy, that's kind of true, but I would never tell my wife that. Oh, no, no, no. Finally, Christy escalated, as 17-year-olds can. I moved into it, and I said, Christy, you need to go to your room. And she looked at me, she kind of, you know, gave me some info that I didn't like, and I said, keep going, go to your room right now. And so she went upstairs, and we have a sign in our kitchen when she slammed the door, it says, bless this house, it went crooked. <laughs> I kind of followed her up, and I said, Christy, I want to talk to you. And first of all, I want to say some of the things you said about mom are true. Well, you know, she's 17, she's going, cool, dad's on my side. I said, but Christy, I never want you to talk to my wife like that again, ever. And I think it was almost the first time that Christy realized that this wasn't just mom and dad, but it was actually my wife. And I then said, Christy, we've made a mistake. I want to tell you something that mom and I have been working on all of your life and before you were born. And it's a word, actually two of them. It says transitional generation. She looked at me kind of blank. She's 17. And I said, the Bible says, Christy, that you inherit the sins of a previous generation, third and fourth. And I said, mom and I have been in the process of recovering and not repeating those sins. I said, we're not burning on grandmas and grandpas. We're just simply saying that, you know, your mom, your mom started in deficit land. There was a lot of things that she didn't have growing up that you have, and I'm not just talking about finances. I said, so your mom, speaking of your mom, is the person in my life who I've seen grow the most, and I mean that about my wife, okay? So I said, mom starts in deficit land, as dad has too. It's the same story with me. 
I said, so mom starts here, and she's growing, and she continues to grow. I mean, sometimes older people don't grow, but not that your mom's like super old. You think she is. But I said, your mom starts here and goes to here, but she's the one who's recovering. The brunt of the dysfunction is on her shoulders, and she's an incredibly bold and courageous woman because she's trying to break that dysfunction. Here to here so that, Christy, you get to start someplace in the middle and you can move on farther. And at that point, Christy, her eyes welled up with tears. She got it. I mean, it wasn't that she started bawling, but she understood that Kathy was a part of this transitional generation, same with me. And I, what I want to say to you as we, as we get into this scripture, as we look at really one of the most important scriptures in the Bible, near perfect summary of the Christian faith, that it's not necessarily always easy. And that I know there's some of you who maybe you came from a transitional generation, and you're going to have to choose today to recover or repeat. I don't know how old you are or what your background is. Jamie in the story had to make a decision somewhere. Maybe it was in jail for her. Hope it's not for you. But in jail to say, I'm going to recover. I'm not going to repeat. I wonder what her family will be like in the future. I have a feeling that the legacy of faith will continue to the next generation and that she's, as that scripture says, you inherit the sins of a previous generation to the third and fourth, but for a thousand generations, you will experience God's love. That's an incredible promise for you and me today. So as we look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, it's a fascinating scripture because it's really about finishing well. Now, some of you are young and you're going, finishing well, I'm just trying to get started. In fact, some of you who are parents may be saying, I'm just trying to get through Thursday. But I'm at a place in my life where I'm saying, am I going to finish well? I've got some friends who are my age. I'm 58 years old. I've got some friends who are my age who aren't finishing well. They're messing up in their marriages. They're messing up their ministry, and they're messing up in their ministries. And I'm thinking, what, what is that? What are they doing? How do you finish the race well? And really, that's what this scripture is about. I say to my kids, and I still say it to them. They're in their 20s now. But I say, the decisions you make today will affect you for the rest of your life. And I know when they were younger, they never, ever caught that. They, didn't, they just look at me blank. But you know what? The decisions we make today, if we play the movie forward, is it going well or is it not going well? A lot of the decisions we make, if we really play it forward, we think it's going to change, but it's kind of doing the same thing over and over again, thinking it'll change. That's the definition of insanity. But for others who are making good decisions, then, you know, it'll play out that way. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions today, but one of the questions is this. Is it working? Is your life working? How about your relationships? Are your relationships working? Is there a block in a relationship? Is there a mistake that you're making in a relationship that actually is causing you to probably be uncomfortable in something? Well, here's the interesting thing. Life working? Are relationships working? It's supposed to. Actually, the scripture is the answer to how to do this, but the scripture doesn't say it's easy. See, a lot of times we think that the people around us have it easy because you know, they probably you know, read this thing more often or they probably have it together more often. But the truth of the matter is, is all of us uh, sometimes find it difficult to walk with God. Sometimes what we need to hear is it's time to persevere. Now, as we think about life, this scripture is about steadfast endurance. Somebody once said the safest place to be is the center of God's will. And really, this scripture is going to show us how to live in the center of God's will. I've got three quick points. Number one is stay focused. Remember I used a phrase, attractive distractions? Some of us don't stay focused. We don't stay focused on our relationship with God. We don't stay focused on our family priorities. And yet, those would be the ones that we would say would be the most important. 
This morning, I was reading a little devotional that I read most days called Jesus Calling, and it said, focus your attention on the path just ahead of you and on the one who never leaves you. I thought, how interesting that sometimes I try to focus way too far in advance. Sometimes I'm paralyzed, and I don't focus at all, or I have an attractive distraction. I kind of go off. But oftentimes, I forget that if we fix our eyes on Jesus, that Jesus would totally agree with what was in the Old Testament. I will never leave you or forsake you, his father said to us. I will never leave you or forsake you. But so many of us try to do it on our own. We try to do relationships on our own. We try to do our relationship with God sometimes on our own. How, how ridiculous, but I do it. I love what Oswald Chambers said. Beware of anything that competes with your loyalty to Jesus Christ. Again, sometimes we think about all the bad stuff, but it's not just bad stuff. There are things in life. My job competes with my relationship with Jesus Christ, and my job, I'm the president of an organization called Homeward. And Doug Fields and I work together to try to help families succeed here in the United States and around the world, and yet my job, which is a Christian ministry, gets in the way sometimes of my relationship with God. And I know that there have been times where my child-focused marriage got in the way of my relationship with Kathy and I because we were so focused on our kids that we neglected some of the basics in our marriage, say, stay focused. I was speaking at the Promise Keepers Pastors Conference. I had the chance during a season in my life to speak for a organization called Promise Keepers. It's a great organization that helps men make good and right decisions. And this was the pastor's conference, and it was at Arizona Diamondback Stadium. And I was sitting with a man named Jack Hayford, who I love, admire, and adore. He's a Christian leader, a nationally known Christian leader. He's in his 80s now. And there was a band playing, and then he was going to introduce me. He was the, what they called the pastor of ceremonies. And I said to Jack, I said, Jack, what's the su- leadership success for you? I mean, what's your secret to success? I love asking, you know, old guys like me about that. Now he's older than me. And he looked at me, and he paused for a moment, and then he said, you know, Jim, it's not what I've chosen to do. It's what I've chosen not to do. I said, what, what do you mean by that? He said, I've tried to stay focused, focused on relationship with God, relationship with my wife, relationship with my kids, and then my ministry, and then all the other stuff. He said, oh, I haven't always done it right. But if you stay focused... Sometimes you have to say no to good things in order to say yes to the most important things. Got to hear that. See, stay focused. Somebody needed to hear that today. In fact, I wasn't even going to give this message, but I did. And somebody needs to hear, don't bail out, persevere. Are you that person who needs to just persevere through whatever you're going through right now? I wish I could say that it's going to be easy. It may not. But persevere. Let me ask you a question. What will it take for you to sustain your faith? What will it take for you to sustain your relationship uh, or relationships? What will it take for you to sustain what you're going through in a good way? You probably know the answer. You know, sometimes we expect the people who stand up here to give us the answer, but frankly, you know the answer. Sometimes we just don't do it. And so point one as we look at this is fix your eyes on Jesus, and the point is simply Stay focused. Sometimes we have these, you know, attractive distractions. Now, sometimes you say, well, but I'm looking for a quick fix. Well, we all are. It doesn't work most of the time. I mean, sometimes there's a quick fix. For me, it's more about life has some pain in it. Well, here's the deal. It's either the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. So if we have discipline and we have intentionality about our relationship with God, we have intentionality about our relationship with 
whoever we're with, our spouse or a, a loved one or whatever it might be, maybe it's even parents. If we have intentionality, then it probably will go well, but if we have no intentionality, then there will be the pain of regret. Now, as I stood up here, um, none of you went, wow, this guy has amazing you know, physical stature, but I want you to know I've been working out, okay? <laughs> Since you couldn't tell, I thought I would just tell you. And, um, and I actually have pain in my chest right now, not pain like heart pain, but be- from pumping iron yesterday. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, yeah well, good. This is the pain of discipline. This is the pain of regret right here. <laughs> but, but in reality, there's pain in life, so it's the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. And really, this scripture is telling us this. Persevere. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Amazing statements. See? Secondly, and I see this coming out of verse 3, where it says, don't let your hearts grow weary. Don't lose heart, in other words. Some of us in here, we lose heart. We, we are weary. Uh, it's interesting that Ethan actually prayed that this morning, that some of us are weary and, and we lose heart. But out of verse 3, what I see is we have to develop the courage to change. And uh, fascinating enough, the Scripture says, and it's some advice that Paul was giving to Timothy, kind of his disciple. We can put it up on the, on the screen here. And it says, watch your life and your doctrine closely, persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So he was talking to Timothy who was also, you know, like an intern, you know, ministry person. But it says, watch your life. Examine your life is another way of saying it. In fact, another version says examine your life. Persevere in them and it will save both yourself and your hearers. So what I think God is calling us to do is be people who persevere, but also who examine our own life. It sounds almost selfish. One of my mentors is a guy named Gary Smalley. He writes books on marriage and parenting, and Gary Smalley calls it self-care. One of the things that he says that I would agree with him on is that there's a whole lot of people in the world right now who don't take care of their own soul. They're so busy doing everything else for everybody else. A friend of mine named Bill Hybels in Chicago calls it self-leadership, and what he says is 50% of our, our time should be directed toward ourself in our leadership. You know, if we're going to put any energy into leadership, 50% of it should be at ourself. It sounds so selfish. But really what he's talking about is taking care of your own soul. I had a woman one time say to me, untended fires soon become nothing but a pile of ashes. I remember saying, say that again to me, and she said, I think I'm supposed to tell you this. Untended fires soon become nothing but a pile of ashes. And, you know, she's so right. So how do we go about taking care of ourselves? Well, one of the ways we've got to do it is take a look at the model of Jesus. It's found in Luke 12. We won't go to the scripture. I just want to let you kind of think about this scripture. It's not actually a teaching of Jesus verbally. It's a teaching of Jesus by his actions. And, and sometimes this is almost what some people might call a throwaway scripture. The Bible is God's word, but... All it says is, Jesus went away and prayed. Then he came back and spent some time with his disciples, and then he did ministry. And we go, okay, cool. But actually, within that statement, what Jesus did was he took care of his own soul. Even Jesus Christ went away and had solitude. He, he, he had soul time. So this is a wagon wheel. It has three parts to a wagon wheel. It's a hand, actually, but I'm pretending it's a wagon wheel. And the center part was solitude. Do you have solitude? Do you take care of your own soul? There's people in here who are so busy taking care of everybody else's stuff that they're not taking care of their own soul and then they wonder why they're spiritually and emotionally beat up. So the solitude, then Jesus did a most remarkable thing. 
Jesus went to his friends, his disciples. He did life with his disciples. They actually lived together. This was his community. We talk a lot about community here at this church. This was his community, or in other words, the word I use is replenishing relationships. Jesus had relationships that replenished him, just as the solitude did. But way too many people, perhaps in this room, try to do life alone. Life was not meant to do marriage alone, parenting alone, faith alone. We were meant for community. That's why these life groups and Rooted and all these things are so important here at this church. In fact, I would suggest, I'm going to speak on it in November here at church, but I would, so I won't spend a whole lot of time on it, but I would just simply suggest that we develop replenishing relationships. Relationships that build us up. You women are better at it than us men. We tend to be lonely islands sometimes. We would never say that, but we are sometimes. We're not connected to anybody. But I know because every Tuesday morning I'm with five guys that I'm a better husband and better father because I'm with these guys and I've been with them for a long time. So Jesus then was able to do his ministry. But if we don't do it that way, we live in what I call crisis mode living. Crisis mode living is when you spend most of your waking moments going from meeting to meeting or carpool to laundry to soccer to whatever it is, and then if you're married, you fall in bed six inches apart from each other but miles apart relationally. Say, It's crisis mode living. We're spinning plates like crazy, and we're just like going from thing to thing to thing, and then we wonder why we have no energy for each other or no energy for God, no energy for our own self, what I would call our primary relationships. So my kids, when they were younger, went to a a school not too far from here called Capistrano Valley Christian School. Great school, horrible parking. And uh, many a day, I would drop my kids off, and I'd say, goodbye, I love you, you know, do the whole thing. And then if I could, I'd turn immediate left. Because when you come into this parking lot there, I don't know if it's changed, but if you could take an immediate left, you could get right out of the parking lot. I was always anxious to get to work. And if you couldn't take an immediate left, then you had to kind of wander through this, you know, maze of cars and kids and, you know, whatever. So one day, I said to my kids, goodbye, I love you, and I turned left, and I ran into a, uh, well, Cadillac Escalade. And I was in the, what we called the Loser Cruiser. It was this old green van that had like three months worth of you know, McDonald's french fries. And I mean, it was gross. My kids would duck when we'd be driving by this thing. And here I am now face to face with a Cadillac Escalade. In fact, the woman was about right here. And she is not saying in the Christian school parking lot, praise God from whom all blessings flow. She's madder than mad that I have hit her Cadillac. And I looked over at the husband, and I didn't even want to look at him because he was going to come out and beat me up, and he looked bigger than me. I looked down, and then I realized I didn't hit the car. Have you ever done that? Where you're driving, you put on your brakes, you think you hit something, and then all of a sudden you go, <sighs> I was about that far from their car, but it, I thought they, I had hit them too. And in fact, I'm going, okay, my car is at this angle. There's no other way I, I didn't hit them, and I was just so relieved. So I looked at her, and I smiled, even though she's giving me a, a look of, I hate you with all passion. And I just said, I, I didn't hit your car. Why I was whispering, you know, the, the, the windows are up. I'm going, I didn't hit your car. I'm going, I missed it by about this much. I think she thinks I've only made a dent about this big because she's getting madder and madder at me. And so I, I'm saying, I'm so sorry. And she's not saying, no problem. She's upset. I look at the guy. Veins are sticking out of his neck. He's, you know, doing this. He's saying things that I don't think are, again, hey, you're a really cool person, Um, he's really upset when all of a sudden I recognized them. They had gone to my church, our church without a pastor, and for that season, I was in the the pulpit a lot, and in fact, they were calling me Pastor Jim, which was dangerous for them and for me, and um, 
I recognize them, because you people sit in the same place. You are the weirdest people. I mean, people are just weird, you know? I mean, do you sit in the same place? Yeah, you do. I mean, you're probably every, every, if you're here every Sunday at this service, you're probably sitting somewhere pretty close. So I recognize them. They kind of sat over there. I didn't know their name, but I kind of had this wave relationship. But I was wearing a baseball cap, so they didn't recognize the bald-headed, you know, pastor. At that point, this guy, in his anger, as I recognize them, just at the moment, it's all happening so quick, he lifts up his hand in anger, and he gives me the international sign of displeasure. So in other words, he flipped me off in the Christian school parking lot. At the exact same moment that he flips me off, I read his lips, and he goes, oh my gosh, it's Pastor Jim. Hey, Jim, how are you? <laughs> so I go, hey, and I go, I'm really sorry. No problem, no problem. So at this point, I finally figure out, Ray, lower the window, and she's going, oh, hey, Pastor Jim, how are you? You know, and I go, I didn't hit your car. Look at that. Look down there. And she goes, oh, I mean, she was totally relieved, but, you know, she had thought I'd hit the car too. So she had to move from I hate you to I'll be listening to you preach on Sunday morning. <laughs> so I back up and kind of again wave and say I'm sorry. I go, now, now your other pastors at this church would not do this, but... Um, on that Sunday, I said to the guys, you know, we'd pray and do the important stuff. I went, I need to go talk to somebody. I mean, it's, it's really important, as if this was going to, you know, change. They're going, oh, he probably has a really serious counseling, you know, thing going on. So I walk over to him, and I go, hi. I go, I am so sorry to have cut you off uh, at the Christian school parking lot. And he goes, I'm so sorry to have, and he starts to say, flip you off. But it, I mean, it was a quick wrist thing. So I helped him. I just said, for, for flipping me off. And he goes, yeah, didn't know you did, saw me. Ah, I said, no problem, it happens to me all the time, just wherever I go, people do that. <laughs> and he said, well, you know what, Jim, it was a crazy day, and, you know, we were down one car, this is my wife's car, and um, my wife was grumpy. Now, she had been on my side, I mean, on his side, and oh, she's like, honey, you flipped him off, what do you mean I was grumpy? Okay, the kids were grumpy, you know, they were living in crisis mode, we all do at times. Now, again, I'm not saying that you all flip God off or flip our spouses off or friends off or whatever, but sometimes we do by just ignoring him or by ignoring somebody because we're so busy, we're in crisis mode. So people who are in crisis mode and don't do the solitude, replenishing relationships, they really oftentimes don't do life well. I've spent my life trying to help kids succeed, and I find kids who are sometimes in a mess not because their parents are evil, rotten, but because they're just simply too busy. I had somebody one time say to me, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Think about that for a minute, okay? And I know, I'll be honest, there are times in my life when I have fried my emotions, when I have abused my spiritual gifts, when I have damaged my body, neglected my family, neglected friends, and neglected God, only to hear God whisper to me, Jim, you are more than a ministry machine. Slow it down. My wife, Kathy, has said to me in the past, we have a Messiah, he's doing very well, don't try to replace him. <laughs> See? What's amazing is when I'm in more of a solitude and replenishing relationships, and I'm not saying it's easy and we're all not gonna move to you know, Montana to live in a commune, we've gotta figure out how to do it here and now, that's when I can ask these kinds of questions. Do I like the person I'm becoming? Do you like the person you're becoming? One of the questions I have to ask is, is my heart shrinking or growing for God? When I'm busy and overcommitted, my heart shrinks for God. Last question, 
My, giving my family only my emotional scraps. How many times have I been up for people like you and then I come home and I'm just worthless? And so I have to ask that question, am I giving my family my emotional scraps? If I am giving them my emotional scraps, then my priorities are not together. See? Another question, what areas of your life do you need the courage to change? And again, I'm not going to tell you what they are. You already know. What's holding you back? Hmm. I mean, we, we want to change. In fact, I have a good friend who's a therapist, and he says, when the pain of remaining the same is greater than the pain of changing, you will change. So sometimes we change because of pain. So if you're feeling pain today, this morning, that may not be bad. In fact, maybe you were here, part of your destiny was to show up here. Many a time, I go to this church. So many a time, you know, I sit in the back and, you know, somebody's out speaking and I went, wow, that was meant for me. What areas of your life do you need to change? Lastly, it's very important that we have an eternal perspective. So we've got to keep the eternal perspective. We'll do better. We're focused more. We'll understand Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. And again, I'm, I didn't exegete that scripture. I'm just simply using it as a scripture. You may want to go back and read it. It's an incredible scripture. But we may have to take a step back and look at the eternal perspective. I love this scripture. And it was actually, I think, one of the secrets to Paul's success. We'll put it up on the screen. It says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Light and momentary troubles? This is a guy who was beat, uh, lashed 40 times with a whip. This is a man who'd been put in prison several times, and he's calling them light and momentary troubles? But the reason he could do this was because he took a step back and went, there's eternal glory. There's an eternal perspective. You will do better in your relationship with God. You'll do better in your relationship with your spouse. You'll do better in your relationship with your you know, special person in your life. You'll do better with your faith when you have an eternal perspective. See? And so as I step back and take a look at that, I think, wow, how can I get that perspective? My dad, at the end of his life, uh, he'd been sober for 20 years now, I was much closer to him. We're sitting in hospice, and my dad said, I'm looking forward to being with God. And he said, I have no regrets. And I thought to myself, Dad, you have no regrets. I mean, I know some of his stuff. But there was a time and a place when he encountered Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying he was ever ready to be the assistant to Billy Graham or the Pope. Not my dad. But he understood that his sins were forgiven and that he had an eternal perspective. He even said he was looking forward to being with God. And I said, you have no regrets. What do you mean? I said, Dad, I have regrets. And he said, well, Jim, I, I, it's more your business than mine, talking about what I do. He goes, it's more your business than mine, but, you know, Jesus forgives sins. And because he forgives sins, then why would I dwell on this stuff? I went, amazing that I could learn that from a guy who really didn't spend a whole lot of time in church. So today, we enter communion. And for many of us, when we do communion, it's, Kind of what we do. But the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus Christ hung on a cross, and in fact, the Bible says that God demonstrated his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died on a cross. Amazing. And in that, his body, which for us is the bread, his body was broken so that you and I might have life eternal and life abundant. And interesting enough, his blood was shed so that we would experience forgiveness. 
Not because of anything we did that was so holy or so special, but just the opposite. It's what he did. It's all about him. It's not about us. So today as you enter into a time of communion, we'll explain it in a moment, be aware that God loves you sacrificially and unconditionally and that all who believe are welcome. You don't have to clean up your act. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to have your life all together in order to come and receive his forgiveness. And you know, one of the beauties of communion is we're reminded of that. God loves you not for what you do, but for who you are. And he's the one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And because he said, I will never leave you or forsake you, guess what we can do? We can focus, we can have the courage to change, we can fix our eyes on Jesus, we can persevere so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. So today, let's come. In a moment, Ethan's going to come up and we'll start a time of worship, but that worship means that we get a chance to participate in something that happens all around the world. And here at Mariners, what we do is we take the bread, which signifies the broken body of Jesus Christ, and we dip it in the cup, which signifies the shed blood for you, the broken body, the shed blood. We do this in remembrance of the act of utmost love in what Jesus did. So literally, as we close in prayer and then Ethan comes up, please come join us. There are tables here. There's tables in the back. And let's participate in a most incredible experience. The Bible says that the Lord inhabits the praise of his people. May today we be again ever recognizing in our own minds and hearts that this act of love is the reason we can persevere. Almighty God, again, thank you. As we come to the cup, as we come to the bread, it's so significant of your unconditional, unfailing love for us. We love you so much. Lord, help us to be men and women who have the courage to change, who have the courage to focus, who have the courage to listen to your voice in a quiet, small way. And Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for who you are. Thank, thank you that in this time of communion, we identify with you. And we're so grateful. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen. Please come, join us.